from Silicon Valley, the heart of startup land. It's Getting to Alpha, the show about creating innovative, compelling experiences that people love. And now, here's your host, game designer, entrepreneur, and startup coach, Amy Jo Kim. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Today, we're talking with Laura Klein, a total badass in the world of UX and customer development. Laura runs the popular Users Know website and is the author of UX for Lean Startups. I love her wit, humor, and incisive insights into customer development. Figure out what it is that you need to validate and then figure out what it would take actually to invalidate that. What could happen that would prove to you that this assumption that you have is untrue, right? And then try to make it untrue honestly challenge your ideas. I love it. Every time I talk with her, I learn something new. Listen in and find out how to create better products with Laura's special blend of lean UX and smart customer research. So Laura, for those who don't know you, start by telling us a little bit about your background, academic background, but your work background that led you to the expertise and the projects that you're doing today? Sure. So um, I graduated back in the early 90s with a degree in political science, which I have proceeded to never use. But uh, I actually started in tech at a place called Interval Research, which was a wonderful place actually to start in tech because I ended up on a team where our whole goal was to talk to users and understand how users felt about technology, how they felt about the future of technology, how they use technology. And uh, I, I got to learn a, a tremendous amount about good research and how to understand people, how to do contextual inquiry, how to do ethnography, how to learn, learn from humans, which is a wonderful thing to know. Following the, the tradition of learning something and then not doing anything with it, I then turned around and became an engineer for several years at startups. But what I realized a few years later was that the part of engineering that I really liked was making things that people could use. And I wanted to make things that were easier for people to use and that that people wanted to use. And so I got into user experience design, which in a weird way combined the research and the engineering. And uh, I learned the design part of it. And um, I've been doing that ever since. The next really big change for me came when I worked at IMVU with Eric Reese. And I got to learn how to incorporate metrics into my design process, which was an absolute revelation, honestly. That always sounds so so dramatic, but it was it was tremendous because it was the first time that I really got to see not just the the impact that my design work had on users. I I could always have that by doing good qualitative research, but I got to see the impact that it had on the company by looking at, you know, how did it affect churn? How did it affect you know acquisition? How did it affect engagement? That, that was amazing because I think that that really, that was the next step in my just becoming a much, much, much better designer because I could get this feedback on how what I was doing actually made an impact. So, and then I've been uh, helping companies do that ever since. Awesome. Well, I know you've helped a lot of companies and you've also helped a lot of people through your book and certainly through your videos, um, things that you've shared on webcasts and at conferences. One of the things that I think is fairly unique about you is the variety of clients you've had. You know, you've got your niche, but as a consultant, you've had a lot of different experiences. What are some of the most common mistakes 
that you see first-time entrepreneurs make when they're interviewing potential customers and they're starting in on customer discovery? The single biggest mistake that people make is that they pitch. And it's so hard when you're an entrepreneur because you know, you spend all this time, you know, making your pitch deck and pitching to investors and telling people how great your idea is and getting money for it and selling and marketing and all of these wonderful things that you probably have to do um, in order to sell your idea. But when you talk to users or potential users, when you're looking for product market fit, you have to change gears entirely. And that is so hard. It is so hard. I get it. It's hard for a bunch of different reasons. It's mostly hard because you're just not used to it. You know, you're used to demoing. You're used to explaining to people why they desperately need this thing. You need to stop selling and you need to start listening. And it's just it's the it may be the only time in your career as a CEO that you're not trying to sell somebody something. You're trying to learn from them, and it's doubly hard because you're going to hear bad stuff. Right? Somebody's going to tell you that your baby is ugly and, and you're going to be sad. And that's just a thing that you have to do because if you want to make your baby prettier, then you have to face the hard truth about what your baby looks like. This analogy has gotten terrible. It's a great analogy and it reminds me of, I think it was Frank Lloyd Wright said, you can use a pencil on your drawings or a sledgehammer on the work site. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. If you don't, you want to find out as early as possible that people hate what you're building, right? If you find out before you've done anything that people hate it, then you have just saved yourself a tremendous amount of time and, it, and you have time to then build something that they're going to love. If you don't find out until you try to sell it to them and they, they'll say no, then you, know, you, may just, you may not have as much runway to change what you're building. You only get so many uh, shots and it's Good to maximize the number of shots that you get to take. Yeah, loops through the build, measure, learn loop. Yes, exactly. I think Eric Reese also, I was re-watching one of his videos and he said, he who learns the fastest wins. Yeah. It's a good aphorism. Really what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. It, the, the sooner that you find out that something isn't working, the sooner you can fix it. And things get geometrically more expensive to fix as they get closer and closer to done, right? It's very easy to fix things at the, at the idea stage. It's a little harder to fix it at the design stage. It's a little harder to, you know, once, once all the, the visuals are done, it's a little harder to fix. Once it's actually in code, it's a little harder to fix. You know, it just gets harder and harder to fix as you get closer and closer to having built the real thing. And man, once you've invested, you know, a year of your time building something to find out then that, it's the wrong thing and that, that you could have made it the right thing nine months ago by talking to somebody. That is just this, that is the most painful thing you could go through. I think as a founder. Yep. And expensive. Yes. Yes. And expensive. So Laura, you mentioned contextual inquiry for those who aren't familiar. What is that? And how does that relate to this dynamic you're talking about? So contextual inquiry is a, uh, it's a research method that we use an awful lot. It tends to be a very open-ended qualitative, observational sort of research method. I always like to compare it to that, that movie, Gorillas in the Mist, where you go and you, you live amongst the gorillas and you study their behavior. Um, it's not quite that intensive, but it is very much about going and studying your user in, in the context in which they are going to be using your product um, so that you understand things like how do they use this technology? You know, are they using it on a mobile device? Are they using it on, on a desktop? You know, what, what is their 
environment look like? What is what is their context? What is the context of use? And it can be incredibly powerful. Uh, it takes a while to do well, but it really, really helps you learn a tremendous amount about your user. And uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of it. Yeah, I've done this for years and not necessarily called it contextual inquiry, but it's all it's a form of ethnography. It is. It is. Yeah. Um, Intuit calls it follow me homes, which I love, but always sounds just a tiny bit creepy. But uh, yeah, everybody calls it something different. I like contextual inquiry because it sounds impressive. So have you experimented much with doing contextual inquiry remotely? Say, if you want to understand what someone's doing in their home, you could have a Skype call with them. You know, it's interesting. Over the last several years, as video and remote technology has gotten better, I do more and more of my research remotely. And I don't think that you get 100% of what you would in a contextual inquiry. However, what you do get is a tremendous savings of time and money. So it's a trade-off like anything else is. Um, You might get, you know, 80% of the information that you would get from actually being in the room with the person. And that's, you know, not as much, obviously, as you would get if you were in the room with the person. But you might get to talk to people all over the world, which can be tremendously helpful. I mean, I remember one time I was doing some user research and I, it was funny because I, I started off, I would talk to somebody in Australia and then I believe I talked to somebody in Switzerland and then I believe I talked to somebody in Florida and I did that all in one day. And the fact that I got to talk to these three entirely different users in entirely different cultural contexts made up for the fact that I wasn't in the room with each of them. It just would have been cost prohibitive to have you know flown me all over to, to do that. So again, like anything, it can be a trade-off. I think you get really, really, really good information doing things remotely. Some things, even beyond just talking to people in different places, uh, you get other stuff remotely. Sometimes if you're doing screen shares, you get to see your user's desktop. Um, you get to see, you know, they're, they're using their actual hardware, you know, their actual computer to, to do the things that you're asking them to do. Mobile can be challenging when doing remote studies, but I'm hoping that that will get better. And the early user research stuff where you're talking to people and trying to find problems and all of that, oh my God, do that remotely. <laughs> Save so much time and money and you get so much good information. That's what I found. And that's um, what I coach people to do specifically. It is so quick. And if you do it that way, I think it also can be easier to identify patterns. But it was so funny when you say that. I was doing some remote research for a client a few years ago that was a toy rental service. Mm-hmm. We're trying to find out some things about how the kids use the computers, whether they see videos on YouTube. The mom is sitting there. We're talking to her. Her kid is, you know, walking through the house so we could see their house. And she says, oh, no, my kid never goes on YouTube by himself. He doesn't know how to do that. Kid walks over, pulls the mouse from her hand, clicks, gets into YouTube, starts watching a video. <laughs> at the screen with this, like, I'm seven, but in, inside, I'm really a teenager look. Yeah. That moment was, I was like, okay, pay off for remote research. Yeah. Well, and and that's what you get. I mean, whenever you're observing people in general, as opposed to just, as opposed to just talking, I'm also a big fan of, you know, you can do some of the stuff by phone, you know, if you're just looking for problems, but understanding the the context of use and being able to observe behavior um, is tremendous. And like I said, the screen sharing and the, the, you know, the video is, is getting so much better and so much easier to use that it's a totally valid alternative. And I think that the, the benefits completely outweigh any possible negatives. Well, that's a great tip. 
especially for first-time entrepreneurs who want to do fast, smart, cheap, high-value customer research. What are some of your other top tips, Laura, for everybody, but in particular for entrepreneurs who want to do those, find those shortcuts, those things that get you 80% of the way there and 20% of the effort? And maybe also, if, if you think of it, certain things to absolutely not do, like you mentioned pitching earlier. Doing the right kind of research for what you want to learn is going to save you a tremendous amount of time. Um, and finding your ideal customer or your, your persona, that the exact person that you think is going to be your buyer um, or your user, those things are going to save you so much time. I talk to so many people who have been like, you know, who say like, well, I've talked to, God, two, 300 people. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> really? Like two or 300 people. That's, that's a lot to have talked to, you know, just one right after another. Are you seeing patterns? Like, well, not really. And, you know, I say, well, okay, maybe you're talking to the wrong people or you're talking to them in the wrong way, or you're, you're asking them the wrong things. I mean, I think a lot of people do what I like to call accosting people in coffee shops, which can be a valid form of research if you want to learn a very specific thing. But what it will never tell you is whether you know, a specific type of person is likely to buy your product. Um, you're not going to get to product market fit by going and hanging out at Starbucks and doing you know, guerrilla usability testing. Pick the right people to talk to. If you're building a product for astronauts, don't waste your time talking to people who aren't astronauts. It's not worth it. You're not going to get any good feedback. And in fact, you might get entirely the wrong feedback. You might get feedback that sends you in exactly the wrong direction. Don't build a product, quote, for moms. Moms are not a valid persona. There are too many of them and they are too dissimilar from each other. And it's impossible to build something that every single one of them will like. Start small, pick a very specific group of people that you can actually talk to and start seeing patterns. Um, if there is a product that you come up with, that you could go out and recruit like any 10 random moms and they would all be really excited about buying that product, then I would love to know what that product is. That doesn't tend to be what actually happens. You want to start with a very specific group of people and you want to do the right kind of research. And that will save you so much time. Um, I think sometimes people try to save time by doing things like, you know, running surveys or running focus groups, or like I said, you know, doing guerrilla usability. If that's not the right methodology for learning what you want to learn, you're not saving any time. You're just getting bad feedback. And doing usability before you've really tested your core value prop can distract everybody. Oh, God, yeah. Beautiful user interface. People tell you it's beautiful. <laughs> let's let's make it really easy to do this thing that nobody wants to do. Well, there you go. One of the things we talk about a lot in our Getting to Alpha program is defining your pilot project. That version, and this is really getting into your experiences with crafting MVPs, which is actually, it's hard to know what the right MVP should be, right? It's not an easy thing, even for an expert. It's funny because, you know, you, you say I'm an expert and yet I will tell you right now that when I'm doing it, I will call in other people to help me because not only is it hard to do, but even knowing everything that you and I know, when you get into the weeds of it and it's your thing, it could be so easy to miss assumptions that you're making. It can be so hard to separate out what you know about the, the product that you're building versus what your customers might know. It can be so hard to look at it with fresh eyes. It can be, 
you know, you could just, you can fall in love with things that you should not have fallen in love with. But of course it must have this feature that I'm in love with and want to build. Nope, not necessarily. That is an assumption and you need to test it. So just really being very, very, very strict about unpacking your assumptions, getting somebody to sometimes help with that, to figure out what your assumptions are and to point things out that you're assuming that you don't know. And it is incredibly hard to do. Which is a lot of why I create models and frameworks and things like the core loop to help Mm -hmm. iterate, 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 iterate towards something where everybody goes, yeah, we all understand why that's the MVP. Yeah. What are some of your favorite techniques for really accelerating toward that MVP? You mentioned it's so important to pick the right technique for what you're trying to do. Again, I think you're one of the people who has a breadth of experience with different techniques. Could you give us a crash course in, say, the three, four, five variety of techniques that you would pull out most often that folks might not necessarily be clear on which to use right up front? Sure, sure. And this is beyond just the, you know, talking to people and, and trying to understand the problem. That, that's, of course, the first thing, right? You need to identify the problem that you think you're solving. Uh, I actually have a video on this with more information uh, on the site. It's called Beyond Landing Pages, How to Find Out If Your Idea is Stupid. It talks about sort of these different methodologies. Some of my favorites are things like concierge testing, um, which a lot of people don't, you know, they, they, they won't even identify this as an MVP, but it is absolutely 100% an MVP. It is this idea that whatever it is that you, whatever problem you think you're solving for people, you're going to go out and find some people who have that problem and then solve it for them by hand. Um, you're not going to automate anything. You're not going to, you know, make it software. You're just going to like act as a concierge and solve it. So for example, if you want to do a marketplace where people can, you know, buy and sell toys or whatever, like you're going to go out and you're going to find people who have toys to sell and you're going to go out, you're going to find people who have toys to buy, who have toys they want to buy, and you're going to make some deals. And if you can't do that yourself, completely hands-on, the chances that you can do that in software are vanishingly small. So I like doing that a lot. That's one of my favorites. Really like audience building. Audience building is a way to prove that you can build up a community of people who are interested in the thing that you are interested in and that that you are going to build the product about. Um, This is particularly good for products that are in spaces where there's a lot of there's a lot of information that people need or that people want. The example that everybody always uses is, you know, the Mint blog. You know, Mint started out by giving away free financial information on their blog. A bunch of other companies do that now, often in the financial space, because finance is something that people are constantly searching for content on. And if they come to trust you as a trusted expert about this particular topic, they are far more likely to continue coming to you when you then have an offering to give them to help them manage their money or to help them do something in the financial space. There there are other areas like this as well. Um, So this is the sort of giving away of content in order to make a connection with your audience and to give them something of value so that they become better at their jobs or at their lives or whatever it is so that they then want to buy products from you. So I'm a big fan of that one. The most important thing is design the test first. Figure out what it is that you need to validate and then figure out what it would take actually to invalidate that. What could happen that would prove to you that this assumption that you have is untrue, right? And then try to make it untrue. Honestly, challenge your ideas. 
Um, if you can't get somebody to buy something and some, somebody to sell something, and if you can't make that connection, like I said, that might not be the right product for you. Those are important things to, to be able to do. Uh, I think that a lot of times we want to jump right to the you know building of things um, or the building of prototypes, which again, super helpful, can be a really great thing to do, but isn't always for me, you know, the thing that, that helps you get to, to product market fit. You got to figure out if the product is something people need. And there's many ways to get there. I mean, the reality is most of the hits didn't necessarily follow this pattern. There's many ways to get to pattern in terms of they didn't necessarily have these conversations, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. But there's many ways to get there. And I think for engineers, and that's where the Lean Startup came from, is an engineer's experience building prototypes versus planning waterfall style and developing complex products and then releasing them is a big aha. In particular, building the most stripped down prototype, which would even be a landing page, which is not going to ignite any engineer's excitement technically, but that's definitely a builder engineer approach. Your expertise is all around design and research and that sort of thing altogether. So you have these other tools. And I think the punchline is even engineers and builders can pretty quickly adopt and learn some of these tools from research and design that can speed up your whole team. You know, even if you're planning and you've got your people working on your prototype, which many teams, you know, they parallelize what they're doing. You can have another team doing this kind of early research, really influencing that early prototype simultaneous. You don't have to wait to build the prototype to start the learning stuff. Oh, no, absolutely not. You should be constantly building things to give people something to react to, to, to get feedback, to, to learn from. Don't just go out and build the final thing based on a lot of assumptions. You need to build things in order to validate those assumptions. And, you know, at some point, it, it's absolutely going to be a prototype, right? Like if you have anything with any sort of complicated interactions, yes, you absolutely need to build a prototype. You need to build a prototype for a lot of reasons, for usability reasons, for understandability reasons, for, give it, like I said, giving people something to react to reasons. Yes, absolutely prototype. Yes, absolutely make landing pages. Yes, absolutely do concierge. Do all of these things, but understand why you're doing each of them and use them for the correct thing. Something that you've talked a lot about and I think is just great insight that not everybody realizes is even before you build your prototype and people react to it, you can run tests and get people to react to your competitors' products. Tell us what that is and then maybe give us two, three tips for people that want to try it. That'll just get them on the right track. Some mm-hmm. common mistakes to avoid. When you think about competitors, <laughs> a lot of people, um, when I say test your competitor stuff, they'll say, oh, we don't have any competitors. We're in an innovative new market. I'm like, good for you. Somebody is trying to solve the problem that you think you're solving in some way. They're struggling with like, Maybe they're solving it with Post-it notes, right? Maybe they're solving it with Excel. Everybody's always solving everything with Excel. That's great. Figure out how people are dealing with the problem that you are solving right now and go watch them do it and watch what's important to them about their solution to this problem and watch how they think about the problem and ask them how they got the idea to solve it and how they decided on the method that they're solving. If you really do have, you know, like actual competitors and if you're, if you're, in the food delivery space or something, right? Like there are actual competitors of yours that you can go out and you can 
just you can run a usability test on your competitor software right now. It's fantastic. You won't make any of the same mistakes that they've made because trust me, they are making some mistakes. And I know that because products are fundamentally hard to use for most people most of the time. So you won't make any of those same mistakes because you're going to have run a usability test on somebody and figure out all the things that people hate about their software and you won't do any of those things. You'll do, you'll make new, more interesting mistakes. Figure out how people are solving the problem that you think they have right now and then understand how they came to that solution, what works for them about it, what doesn't work for them about it, what's the most important thing about it. It will help you develop your messaging. It will help you figure out the channels through which you're going to recruit people. It will help you to just build really the core thing that solves the one problem that you want to solve. And that's the most important thing it does, honestly, because once you've done that, then you can actually start iterating and and making sure that you've got the right problem. You, again, you've worked on a variety of different things. Mm -hmm. And we've had this conversation before. And every time you have a slightly different answer, which I love. (laughs) Um, What is your superpower as a designer and researcher? Where do you feel most at home where you feel like it's really what you were put on earth to do? Um, I do always have a different answer to this. And and I've explained, I don't think it's because I have a lot of superpowers. I think it's just because I'm incredibly forgetful. Um, But uh, no, I think I am pretty good at spotting patterns. That's important to be able to spot patterns quickly in user research and in things that people tell you uh, and in observations. It's important to be able to spot them. And then it's important to be able to verify them and to validate them without, without again, falling in love with them. And a pattern is not, you know, when you see two people do something necessarily. But once you can spot those patterns in the problems that people are having, that really helps you figure out what to build next, what problems you want to solve for people. And so I honestly, we've had this conversation. I don't think it's a superpower. I think it's, it's a skill learned over 20 years of talking to users. So all that you have to do to develop the superpower is go out and talk to users for 20 years and then you'll totally be able to do it. But um, you do, you start, you start to see patterns much more quickly and you start to know how to talk to people in order to get better feedback and information from them. Awesome. So what's next for you, Laura? What's on the horizon? What's exciting to you right now? I've been thinking a lot recently about how to sort of apply all of this UX stuff that, that we know so much about how to apply it to other things. Recently, I, I was talking to some people about customer training and customer success. And, uh, you know, they're talking about finding your ideal customer and, you know, understanding their problems. And I'm like, this all sounds extremely familiar. And I'm also, um, I've been talking to a lot of people about growth and, you know, growth hacking and, and marketing. And they're all talking about, well, you, you know, you got to really understand your user and you have to understand what motivates them and you have to be able to experiment and, you know, run quantitative tests and come up with, you know, hypotheses and then validate or invalidate them really quickly. And I'm like, that sounds really familiar. And I'm, I'm beginning to realize that it's all the same stuff. You know, I, I, uh, I had a dance teacher at one point who said that at the higher levels of dance, it's no longer, you know, ballet or salsa or Lindy or anything. It's, it's all just dancing. And I feel that way about product at this point. It's all just product, right? It's how you get users, who they are, understanding who they are, how you get them to do the things that you want them to do, how you understand their problems, you know, how you make them happy. It's all just product. And I think that that's important to look at how 
the things that we know as user experience designers can help inform some of the newer things like growth hacking and and customer success and and all of these things that are that are coming out and how we can help make those better and what we can learn from them. Absolutely. That is a really interesting point. And I do think it's all the same at the deeper level, which mm-hmm. is the level you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I think in the details there's a lot of differences. Oh yeah. In particular, there's a lot of what you could call growth hacks that were viral tricks. There's also an approach to designing habits and engagement that's pretty straightforward operant conditioning behavior mod mm-hmm. that I would consider very different from game design, for example. But I think at the deeper level, game design is lean design, is good UX design, is really smart growth hacking, which yeah. is about laser focusing on who your customer really is and what they want and what moves them, which you get to with a combination of metrics and vision. I would say that everything you mentioned there, the tactics are sometimes different and some tactics are better than others, right? Uh, Unsurprisingly, some tactics in growth hacking are frankly unethical and some of them are bad for users and some of them are wonderful and some of them are great for users. The same thing in user experience design, the same thing in, you know, encouraging virality or encouraging engagement. The tactics differ, but the strategy of, yeah, let's identify a a business need. Let's identify a a user need that goes along with that business need. Let's figure out what we can do for the user to make them want to do the things that are good for the business, right? Let's figure out how we can solve their problems so that they also solve our problems and so that everybody comes out happier and better. How can we make them better at what they need to be better at? Thank you so much, Laura, for being part of this Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Getting to Alpha with Amy Jo Kim. The shows that help you innovate faster and smarter. Be sure to check out our website, gettingtoalpha.com. That's getting2alpha.com for more great resources and podcast episodes.